Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. Let's talk about nonviolent civil resistance. Let's talk about loving your neighbor and your enemy as yourself. Let's talk about economic justice. Today, Nicholas Harrelson comes back on the show to talk about all of this from an essay he wrote that is absolutely fantastic. Would you rather serve God than serve right. Caesar? You know me? Right. I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live. Nicholas, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing well. The, the winter is waning in North Carolina, and uh, which means we're about to have pollen season. So we're in that intermediate time where uh, I can still breathe and the weather's a little bit warmer. Well, I mean, you can hear me right now. I mean, I don't know. It feels like we're going to go into spring, and then the next week we we'll go back into winter here in Memphis. I can't figure it out. And at the same, the same time, the pollen is trying to figure it out themselves. So one day I wake up and I feel great. I can breathe. The next day, like today, I wake up and my eyes are glossed over. My nose is stopped up, which, you know, people are used to listening to this podcast. They're going to hear me sound stopped up quite a bit. And I think it's the pollen. But I think the pollen is a little confused about what's going on right now in the, in the, in the, with the weather in Memphis. That's, that's why I tell people, you know, you don't really need to move to the Middle South. You know, you, you don't want to come down here because spring and fall you're liable to have four seasons in one day so just keep going to florida <laughs> yeah, keep going to florida i right through the middle south and head on down to florida they, they love y'all down there from from up north in the midwest well you know the, the uh the florida likes to pretend they're the, the part of the southeastern conference you know we were talking about some uh basketball a little bit before we started recording you know this the day after uh my razorbacks beat the Kansas Jayhawks, the defending national champions, by one point. We moved on to the Sweet 16, and I could not be more excited. I was I was running through work like a complete child celebrating, and you actually brought it up. I wasn't going to mention it, but since you brought it up while we were uh, – before we started recording, I'm going to talk about it now because I'm still very excited about going back to the Sweet 16 for this third straight year. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't even know they were doing the NCAA tournament this year. <laughs> I don't believe that, actually, because as I know you're a Tar Heel fan, and um, I wasn't going to bring that up either. But you're a Tar Heel fan, and they didn't—they started off number one in the regular season and did not make the tournament. Yeah, you know, I was actually, you know, pretty proud of my boys for uh, for setting a record yet again this year. First, uh, <laughs> first preseason number one team to uh, to never make the uh, the NCAA tournament since they expanded it to the round or to sixty eight teams, you know. So, you know, yet another record that falls to the UNC Tar Heels. So, I'm all. <laughs> I don't get a chance to pick on you very much, you know. You, you know, when you've been on the show before, you've always tried to, you know. Pick, pick your spots with me to pick on me about different things when it comes to barbecue or or uh, my sports teams or whatever. But I finally get a chance. I don't think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to let you alone about this and just uh, be friendly. You know, we're going to talk about pacifism here a little bit, so I think it would probably be the the best idea just to let you alone about it. But I do have a question, though, because you do uh, work for Duke as a Tar Heel fan. I'm very curious how that – Goes. I used to have a phone or a picture of you on my phone that you shared of you were you were uh, wearing a Duke T-shirt. Yeah, as a Tar Heel fan, uh, waving a, the American flag, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, you uh, <laughs> made sure to get me on a 
I, I have to say, uh, at that particular moment, I uh, I uh, understandably stooped that low because it got me free tickets to the camera indoor. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, there's a couple of funny stories. My dad's a graduate of uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, I never went to school there, but in the South, that doesn't really matter. Um, and so uh, I've been a lifelong UNC fan. But unfortunately, uh, UNC uh, does not. It's a public school, so it doesn't have a seminary. Um, and so I applied to Duke. And uh, when I got accepted, my dad congratulated me and said, uh, you know, I want, I want to congratulate you for getting into the University of New Jersey at Durham. <laughs> so from, from thenceforth, he, he received something from the Duke student store every Christmas. Um, <laughs> Yes, I, I do. I, I work for the Office of Student Veterans at Duke. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to like uh, I used to enjoy calling myself an aspiring pacifist. And uh, and so I thought, you know, the best way to remedy that situation and really practice pacifism was to get a job working at Duke University where I have to practice pacifism on a daily basis. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really curious because, like I said, it's been a, it's been quite a minute since you've been on the show. The last time you. Uh, uh, guest hosted with Christianopolis when we did as uh, uh, Jesus the Anarchist book, you know, um, or Christian anarchism, and that's been a little bit even then. And you've been on the show before then, you know. Um, I'm, I'm really kind of curious, and for, for folks who may be curious and who know who you are, maybe kind of catch us up and tell us about this uh, whole litter of kids you've got going on and your ta- your your anarchist toddler running around the house. So let's talk about that, and then we'll get into your uh, your piece here that you wrote. Yeah. Um, so uh, for for folks who don't know me, um, you know, this this whole uh, road down uh, Christian anarchism began uh, with me serving six years in the army. I was a I am a combat wounded veteran um, of Iraq, did two tours in Iraq as an infantryman. And that's really uh, my experiences there uh, were what uh, initiated me finding an interest in, in Christian anarchism and Tolstoy in particular. I, I also worked for government for a while after I got out of the army, um, which I have to say was also a big influential factor in me um, not liking government. It was uh, an experience in um, futility and uh, you know taught me a lot of patience uh, dealing with bureaucracy. Um, but ultimately it ended with me not working in government anymore. Um, it was just not not a job that I uh, was well suited for, I don't think, especially um, in the period uh, after me coming out of the military. These days, I am now uh, a transitional deacon in the Anglican Catholic Church and working uh, at the Office of Student Veterans at Duke. And I am pursuing a PhD at Aberdeen University in political theology and Christian ethics. Um, I've got, as Craig said, two uh, very young children who uh, very much embody the anarchist ideal, and uh, one more so than the other, and they may or may not make an appearance at some point in the podcast. Uh, really don't, they don't listen very well at all. Well, we can turn it into a roundtable. I mean, if they do show up, I mean, we'll just have your kids on as well. We'll just, we'll just make it a roundtable. Only one of them speaks English, so. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I mean, one, they both will have a lot to say, but only one of them will be understandable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. 
Well, I've got some questions then. I do want to I want to bring something else up too because you um, you pop in every once in a while in a discussion group, and there was something that you y'all did with your church that I'm I'm very proud of y'all for doing. It was something that it's something that I've 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 come to understand as far as when it comes to universal restoration. It was something, that, and I'm not saying that you hold to that or even your church holds to it, but y'all just just was holding a discussion with uh, David Bentley Hart about this. And you invited folks to come over to y'all's page and, and, and to, to read it. And I, I went onto the page and I just thanked y'all for doing it. And I got blasted by some folks who were following along on this page and I couldn't figure out. And I, and I told the one guy, I can't remember his name, but I think he's an Anglican pastor or priest. I don't know what y'all call yourselves, but what I'm saying is he, he got so upset. And I was like, man, you just sound like a very angry person. I said, I just think that I, I'm just very thankful that they're having this conversation. They're just having a conversation. It's all it is. It's not like you have to believe this and we're going to believe this. And we're going to teach this in our church. It was just a conversation. And I, I just wanted to bring it up before we get into this, because I, I'm very grateful for y'all doing that and hosting that because I like the idea that we can have these conversations and maybe not be angry with one another about it, you know, because this was a conversation they were having back in the early church, but they weren't mad at each other about it. Everybody understood there were there were universalists, there were annihilationists, there were uh, eternal conscious torment folks, all this stuff, but they weren't angry about with each other about it. And you're seeing this this conversation or this topic infuriate some people, and I can't figure out why. What does it matter? If you're right, okay, you're right. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. In the end, we're all going to find out at some point. But what I, the reason I wanted to bring it up, because I, like I said, I'm, I'm very thankful for y'all to do this and to host it, regardless of whether y'all teach it or, or whatever. Just the fact that y'all just were willing to have a conversation, the, the fact that it upset so many people, that still blows my mind. It, you know, the, there's a couple of things at work there. Um, one that's, it, uh, you know, apocatastasis or um, universal restoration is a topic that I've been interested interested in. I actually uh, wrote an article for the North American Anglican on C.S. Lewis um, as a potential universalist. And um, ultimately what I concluded is that he has a very broad soteriology, a very broad idea of salvation but that he falls short of uh, such folks as George MacDonald, who he very much was influenced by, who even makes an appearance in, in one of his books. Um, he falls short of universal restoration, but I think he could possibly be termed a hopeful universalist. But, you know, there's a couple of things going on there that I think to be charitable to some of these folks um, who were very upset. One, Dr. David Bentley Hart, and Father Robert Hart, who's the rector of my church, uh, to a lesser degree, they can be somewhat um, confrontational in, in their approach at times, um, which, um, you know, I don't know if that's just maybe who they are as people or if, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a particular way in which they approach discussion or what have you. You know, th I think most people know that Dr. Hart can, can rile some, some people up with with his approach but then two to be very charitable as as charitable as i possibly can be i think that when it comes to people who view the idea of certain universalism as a heresy they view it as something as as people leading others astray and potentially putting someone's soul in jeopardy um and, and if that is truly why they are as upset as they are, then I have some ability to understand that. Right, right. When right. I think of it that way, it makes it, 
It makes it a little bit easier to endure some of the harsh words that are thrown around and a little bit easier to approach people um, with a charitable attitude. Um, but as you said, there was some pretty, pretty interesting and severe disruption caused by us um, hosting that. And, and it, you know, it's not a doctrine of our church. We don't proclaim it to be such. I have my questions about certain universalism, and, and I certainly cannot say that I am one. I, I probably fall better, more neatly into the category of hopeful universalist. But it, like you said, you know, Dr. Hart is the younger brother of, of the rector of our church, um, and he's a very famous theologian. And our church is situated right between UNC and Duke. And so it just made sense that if Dr. Hart was willing to do a five session book study on a, on a fairly well-known book for free, that we would take him up on the offer and see if it might be of interest to folks around us um, just to, to try to, uh, you know, to 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 have spark some interest in the church and, and show that we have some some serious theological conversation and that we are a place where that kind of stuff happens. Um you know, I think uh, I think it was definitely uh, taken out of context pretty severely. Right. And, I, and and not to make this show about universalism or annihilationism or eternal conscious torment, not trying to do that. It, where I land on it, I remember you saying this one time in one of the groups that we run around in, that you, you called yourself a hopeful universalist. And I, and I understand that. And what I find so fascinating about the topic and, you know, talking with Abby Kleckner or Ari Spiger, Scott Goldman about this, who were staunch universalists. And they all said to me when we did the show on that, you know, we're just tired of arguing about it and we, we won't engage it. And, and I get that now, you know, at the time I was like, no, I want you to argue about it because I'm still trying to learn this. I need to learn more about this. I'm very curious about it. And now I've gotten to the point now I'm not going to argue with folks about it because it's not that important to me for people to understand universalism. As long as you're not running around telling people they're going to burn in hell forever, they don't do a certain thing, then we're good. Okay. So I don't really argue with folks about it. And that's where I got to when I, when I did say something on that Facebook page of y'all's, the guy came at me and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm at work. And I'm not going to fight with with somebody about universalism because it doesn't I don't care if you believe in it. I really don't care if you believe in it. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. <laughs> right. And, and the arguments tend to um, especially, you know, I know that Dr. Hart's uh, primary complaint is that no one would actually engage with the argument he was trying to make. And it's true because a lot of people tend to just come into those groups and start throwing around the fifth ecumenical council and how it, yes. it proclaimed it a heresy when in fact it did not. And they can't point to the language where it did. What they point to is that the fifth ecumenical council condemned origin as a heretic. Origin was a universalist. And so, you know, they're extrapolating things. They're extrapolating from things that don't exist. And so they can't make an argument against Dr. Hart's, understanding. Um, and so it ends up just being a lot of, you know, contentious words thrown around and very few people, you know, actually attempting to engage with the argument that's actually provided in the book. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like the Russia Ukraine war. There's like two armies on e on a side of, you know, on either side of the line and the line doesn't move regardless of what you throw at it. You know, nobody, nobody's going to give up on their side and it's just a, 
it's a mess typically, and it never it's never very fruitful. Well, it, it's something that um, j- just on this topic again, <laughs> and I, I don't want to make the show about it, but talking about origin, from my understanding, they weren't calling him a heretic because he was a universalist. They were calling that the heresy was that he was saying that even Satan and his demons would be restored. And they were calling that heretical, not the fact that he believed that that God would be restoring his creation as universalism, but that he even included Satan and his demons. And that was the heresy. It wasn't they were calling universalism heretical. It was just that those two those things, that one thing about origin that they were calling heretical. And it was one of those things and, and, and reading things about Tertullian, who I adore when it comes to reading about the early church, when it comes to the, the, the entanglement of the, church, the Christian with the state, I adore him so much. I did not know he was an eternal conscious torment guy until I listened to uh, David Artman, uh, Grace Saves All podcast. And he mentioned it, or somebody on his show mentioned it. I was like, wow. But it did not change the way I felt about Tertullian. You know what I'm saying? So. It didn't change the way I felt about Tertullian and how how uh, how spoken he was when it came to how the Christians and, and the state were not to be entangled with one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, it's really funny. I actually met another Christian anarchist, um, or at least uh, you know someone who's um, in the the field, academic field, studying anarchism, who was attending the the podcast. Um, Doctor Gary Chartier, I think, is his name. Um, and I can't remember the school that he teaches out. It's out in the Southwest somewhere, I believe. Um, but just, just because I asked a question about, uh, you know, the popularity of universalism within Christian anarchist circles to Dr. Hart, uh, he ended up sending me, he has a new book coming out, uh, Christianity and the state, I believe it's called, um, and sent me, sent me some of the stuff from that. And, and, and we're going to be striking up a conversation pretty soon. And so it was really interesting because I asked a question about, the popularity of universalism within Christian anarchist circles. You know, why is that? What do you think the connection is there? And sure enough, there was a a person in the audience who, in fact, studies Christian anarchism. Uh, you know, um, so it, it kind of it kind of proved the point of the question. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting discussion, and I I really enjoyed it despite some of the the speed bumps we might have had. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh... It, it's uh, it's always fun for me when I meet somebody in real life, not just, you know, through social media when they, they claim to be a Christian anarchist. And I ran into one, you know, I started uh, training jujitsu and I ran into one at jujitsu. I mean, I know a lot, you know, some folks in ju- in the jujitsu society in Christian anarchist society who do this. But I met one at this gym that I train at. I was wearing one of our bad Roman T-shirts and it was the uh, we are we ought to obey God rather than man. It had the Christian uh, anarchist symbol, you know, the Jesus fish with the anarchy. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And he saw it and he started asking questions. He goes, yeah, I used to be a libertarian and I just gave up on it. And I, I, I just consider myself a Christian anarchist. And we were stretching, getting ready to start training. And I'm like, I want to hear more. So I'm going to get him on the show and we're going to talk about jujitsu and Christian anarchy because. It's fascinating to me how those two worlds kind of meet at the same time. It, it's strange, you know, when you get to meet folks in the in real life that are like, yeah, they claim to be Christian anarchists. Well, I'm not the only crazy person running around in Memphis talking about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's always fun to run into somebody like that. Hey, folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. 
two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. All right, let's uh, let's get into this essay a little bit if you want to. Absolutely. All right, cool. So in the in the introduction to this essay, you mentioned wanting to compare the theory and practice of Tolstoy and Martin Luther King Jr. in regards to nonviolent their nonviolent stance, loving your neighbor, and and economic justice, and their differences in practical implementation. And I love that you chose these two to talk about because I've always found it fascinating. We talk about Martin Luther King Jr. on the show and Tolstoy on the show that MLK, he still worked through the state trying to get what he what he saw as um, what he wanted to see happen. And Tolstoy was like, we'll have none of that. And I love how you compared the two in this essay. And, and let's talk about let's start there. Let's just talk about the comparison real quick. Well, not real quick. Let's talk about it for 20 minutes. So, you know, the interesting thing, one, is that most people don't realize or recognize the significance of the historical connection between Tolstoy and King. Um, That is built on a relationship that has Gandhi as the mediator. You know, so Tolstoy in the latter half of his life wrote several letters. I believe it was eight in total entitled Letters to a Hindu, um, where he was speaking back and forth with Gandhi, who was very captivated by Tolstoy's reading of the Sermon on the Mount. And then, you know, Tolstoy, or excuse me, Gandhi, very much adopted or worked in in conjunction with Tolstoy to develop this understanding of nonviolent civil resistance, um, which he implemented. It was very much a, you know, a practical use of that, um, that, understanding in the the realm of politics in India, um, you know, Gandhi was very much, uh, he, he was what some people might call, you know, he had held a compromised understanding of, uh, of Tolstoyan pacifism, um, wherein he did not necessarily believe that violence was never a thing that was of use. Um, and so, it makes sense that when Gandhi and King were very much in touch, I believe King King even visited Gandhi to see how he operated in India uh, with his activism. It makes sense that King very much started from this kind of compromised Tolstoyan stance, where um, in particular King was a very practical individual who had a very initially a very specific goal. Of, of desegregating the American South. Um, but he worked, you know, at least initially with an understanding that law and the state could have some benefit for his, his activism. He very much recognized, you know, at that time, the federal government was saying that the American South ha- had to desegregate but the American South was refusing to do it. 
And so King very much talked about, I'll see if I can find it here. Um, I believe it's his letter from a Birmingham jail. Well, so without actually quoting him, he talked about uh, just and unjust laws, that a just law is a law that very much falls under um, the categorization that uh, I believe it was Aquinas and uh, St. Augustine would say that laws that follow the natural and moral law, laws that follow or in, in you know conjunction to God's law and commandments, that is a just law. An unjust law is a law that does not follow God's commandment, that does not follow natural law. And so he recognized that, you know, some laws could be good, which I think even most Christian anarchists would say, you know, if it's a law that is very much in tune with God's law or with God's commandments, then it's probably a good law. It's not something we would disobey as a Christian, so we're not going to disobey it just to spite the state either. Um, but yeah, so the the totality of my project and and probably the main theme and the thing I'm going to try to argue is that by the end of King's life, he was much closer to Tolstoyan anarchism and pacifism than he was to his original Gandhian stance. That he started off as a person who was seeking to use nonviolent civil resistance for a very practical and very focused reason. And by the end of his life, he had started the Poor People's Campaign. He was a pacifist and against the Vietnam War. His idea of the beloved community was something that he believed should expand or should extend across the globe. It was not something that was just relegated to American politics or American society. It was something that as Tolstoy would probably argue, Tolstoy would, would say that the Sermon on the Mount is relevant in every situation, at every time, and in every place. Originally, King might not have believed that. I don't necessarily know if that's the case or not, but his actions were much more focused and much smaller scale initially. And so I think by the end of his life, had he lived longer than he did, he probably would have very much been someone who embraced the totality of Tolstoy's understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's interesting watching um, how all that unfolded with 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 King. You know, um, I, I'm going to paraphrase this, and it, it was something he said. He said, "I can't." Oh man, something about making a law that makes makes it harder for you to kill me or something but in, at the end of the day the state ended up killing him anyway and you know we know that as a fact now that they've come out and finally admitted to the fact that they are the ones who ended his, ended his life so it is very interesting to see how that played out who for somebody who's trying to work through the state during that time to stop the oppression and and, and but the way he was going about it, being a pacifist about it and like I told you before we started recording, you know, it was very interesting to see, too, that how adamant he was to tell the folks who were following him along, we're not going to put hands on the state. We're not going to do that. He was very adamant about it. And, and, and if you if you see how productive that really was 
and the fact how it was changing people's minds and their hearts about this, the fact that they were not going to put their hands on the state while the state was putting their hands on them. You see what I'm saying? So that was, I think, I, I don't know if people gloss over that so much these days, but I've, in conversation with folks I've had about it, they don't tend to talk about that too much when it comes to King. You know, they talk about, you know, the protest, and all this stuff. They don't they don't they don't focus on the fact that they, he was adamant about not putting hands on the state. And it's something that as a pacifist myself now, I understand. Now, I'm going to have um, a lot of loud opinions about the state, but I'm not willing to pick up a pistol and go fight them and start a new revolution like a lot of folks in, we see in, in the liberty movement quote unquote, wanting to start a new revolution. No, at the end of the day, there's still somebody there holding a sword. And Jesus said to put that sword away. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting because in, in the very least, we do know that the state was very much um, manipulative and seeking to, uh, you know, have control over King as much as possible because they did view him as someone with the potential of causing a great disturbance. But I think I think that this comes back to the fact that even from the very outset, King, as a Christian, understood the very same thing that Tolstoy argued about violence. Um, he actually says, and I don't remember exactly where he wrote this, but he speaks to violence and he says the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so the thing that's interesting about King and Tolstoy from the very outset is that, you know, they they had a focus on reconciliation, which I think is a beautiful reflection of how Christ operated. You know, Christ came to be the redemption for all, even the ones who killed him. And so in resisting them and in being political, Christ could not be violent because he sought the salvation of the very people he would have acted violently against. And so King didn't want to simply secure a new world for African-Americans. He didn't want to simply um, prove something right to the, you know, admonishment of others. He sought to have a community in which the oppressor and the oppressed could live together as brother and sister. You know, he, he, the only way to offer that type of reconciliation when there's violence is for one person to refuse to be violent. Um, and he recognized that that was a practical thing to do because that refusal to act violently against someone who's acting violently against you, that highlights the absurdity of the person who is being violent. And so that was a very practical thing, especially you know in the new age of media where you know, it was broadcast all over the, the country and the world 
these scenes of police violently beating um, nonviolent protesters. But in the end, it also allowed for the cycle of violence to stop because it stopped with someone and it allows for reconciliation afterwards, which I think is a very deeply Tolstoyan concept. Um, you know, he, he talks about this to Tsar Alexander III. Uh, Tsar Alexander III's father was killed by an assassin, and, uh, and Tolstoy actually sent a letter to the Tsar uh, requesting that he forgive or provide clemency to the, to the assassins and to just send them to America. And that if he did that, he would stop the cycle of violence there and he would be acting on the commandment of God. And so he would be acting on an authority that is much higher than his own. Um, it's a it's a very it's a very interesting concept. You know, and one of the one of the I remember reading this, one of the assassins that was actually put to death by Tsar Alexander III was related to um, it was either Lenin or Trotsky. And so you have to wonder if Tsar Alexander III had provided clemency to that assassin, what, how would that have affected, uh, you know, the, the communist history, right, right. History in general, <laughs> you know, um, it could, it could be 100% different than, than how it turned out. Um, because, uh, it's, uh, Dr. Steve Hickey's book, second Tolstoy goes into it quite a bit. Um, talking about, I think it was Lenin. Um, talking about Lenin and how the czar putting his relative, I can't remember if it was a brother or, or a cousin, putting them to death affected him so badly that that's what sent him down this trajectory that was completely against uh, the royal family, completely against the czar. And, uh, and we know how that turned out eventually. Right, and I don't, I don't want to get too far off your essay, but I, I want to, I want to bring something up. This, this topic of pacifism is always so interesting to me because when, I, if, if I talk about it, and I love the conversation, I love the topic, and I love engaging folks about this because it always, it, when it comes to nonviolent resistance, even if it comes to your family, and I, like, I don't have kids, I'm not married, so I, and I understand the argument that I get from folks. Well, if somebody breaks into my home, they're going to harm my children or my wife. I'm going, they're going to be met with some violent resistance. I, I get it. Yeah. At the same time, that's not what Jesus instructed us to do. Okay. And then, then this is what I, what I, this is the pushback I get is, let's say somebody's going to shoot somebody, you don't shoot them first type thing. So that that's what that's, it always goes down this, this, the same thing when it comes to resisting violence that you have to respond violently with a pistol. And I, I understand the argument and I used to be that guy, but the, the more I've read the early church and how, you know, there were a couple of things that they were universalist about Universe, not universalism, but, you know, universalists about was no king but Christ. They knew who their king was. They had no interest in re involving themselves with the state. And they would not harm anybody back who was harming them. And, and, and it, it, that's missed today. And I think what you were talking about with King just a minute ago, how they would just the. The, the very fact that they would not respond violently back changed so many, many, many folks' minds and hearts about this. 
that it made a bigger change than it, than it had it been them out there with a bunch of pistols, you know, fighting the cops, you know, who were trying to harm them. And I, and I think that's missed because you don't know what's going to happen later on or how Jesus or how God could use your example of not violently responding to them, even if it means losing your life. I understand we, we're not trying to, we don't get out of here. None of us get out of here alive, right? So what are we going to do if we're going to try and change the world? Are we going to do it violently or are we going to do it the way Jesus instructed us to? And how, the, the example of Jesus and how Jesus changed the world. Yeah. You know, so I, I this this topic, I, I could I posted something from Rival Nations in our discussion group, and it was about this topic for the most point. But the but the the meme that they shared was just some dude holding a gun, and immediately people jump on. Well, I've got my my nine millimeter. If they break into my home, and I was like, Did you read the article? Did you read that? Nobody read it. They just saw a meme. <laughs> the guy was holding a gun. I mean, look, as a as a you know an aspiring meme farmer myself, I can certainly say that I've done my fair share of reacting to a, a, a meme or a picture or an article without having read the full thing. <laughs> I'm all guilty of it, and if you say you aren't, then you're just lying to yourself. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is when the the clergyman, the pastor, in me comes out a little bit. I mean, one, there's a reason that we have a saying that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, it, it's true when you when you act in a way that is um, congruent with Christ's own actions, it has a profound effect. It will be something that eventually makes it to others and becomes an, an inspiration, uh, you know, an, an inspiring act of nonviolent defiance. Um, we've seen that as recently as, you know, uh, just a couple of years ago, I believe in Libya, where uh, a large group of Coptic Orthodox Christians were put to death um, by jihadists and proclaimed Christ to their grave um, and did so nonviolently. Um, you know, and it's had a, you know, a profound effect on uh, people who read the story. But as a as a pastor as a clergyman you know we are we are fallen creatures we are fallen from god's grace and we have to constantly be checking our own actions and reflecting on how we live our lives because we sin without ever even thinking about it without even recognizing that we've sinned we have we have certainly committed it um and so the the highest ideal that I can call people to on a daily basis is to, to constantly aspire to act in a way in accordance with Christ's own actions. And so as long as you are, are constantly considering it, if you're considerate of the ways in which you have reacted to things, the ways in which you might react to things, then you're doing the work. You can't hold yourself to a perfect position all the time. You know, what, you know, if someone provides me the, the, um, you know, the, the hypothetical scenario that someone breaks into my house and tries to murder my kids, you know, the only thing I can tell them is that I certainly hope I would try in every way possible that is nonviolent to make the situation better. But I can't tell you how I'd react. 
Right. And I think that's something too, that I, I was just thinking about too. And I don't know how I would actually react in this situation. I could sit here and, and, and talk about it all day long, but, and I pray to God that I'm never in that situation. You know, it's something what well, I was mentioned jujitsu a while ago, you know, to me, the go-to is to pick up a pistol and respond with a pistol. To me, that's very lazy. Yeah. Okay. And I said that one time in our discussion group and I got blasted for that. You know, I'm like, listen, the reason I took up jujitsu, because I recognize there might be a time where I need to, there's going to be a need for self-defense. And if I could learn a way to restrain somebody without killing them, and even in the process, I might get killed myself, but at the same time, people are getting away and their own lives are saved. You know, that's, that's how I approach these things now. Like I don't, I recognize that there might be a time. I mean, hell, man, I live in Memphis. It's a dangerous city to live in, right? You never know. You got to you got to keep your head on a swivel around here sometimes, you know, because you just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that happen in this city. But at the same time, I'm not willing to, even if it means me losing my life, is if I can protect somebody, that to me is loving my neighbor and my enemy at the same time, even if it means losing my life, does that make sense? Or am I, am I just spouting off something, you know, just cause I, I spend too much time maybe thinking about this, but that's a re- the main reason I started training jujitsu is because I recognize there might be a need for self-defense, but at the same time, I don't want to pick up my nine millimeter and put a bullet in somebody's head in self-defense. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not ever, I used to be that guy. I was, I was that guy that would not hesitated to pick up that pistol and end somebody's life in protection of my life or somebody else's life. Now I'm like, I'm not willing to do that. This is not an invitation for people to come at me and say, well, let's see what Craig's going to do now. <laughs> Please don't do that. Cause I'm training jujitsu and I'll figure out a way to restrain you, but I'm not going to kill you back. <laughs> You know, I've always been told that the the Judy chop is one of the most powerful defensive moves in the hand. So I think, you know, and this is, again, me coming from more of a pastorly type setting. I think, you know, as as creatures, we have a we have a, a tendency to focus on the temporal, the here and the now. You know, ultimately, Christ, Christ came to offer us eternal salvation, eternal life. And so it makes sense to me, and this is a very Tolstoyan concept, that, you know, we should probably focus on living the way Christ told us to live instead of being so blind to that by everything else. You know, one of his biggest critiques with the church is that they were constantly focused on speaking to Christ's divinity and then completely ignoring the words that were very plain and simple that told us how we should live one to another. Um, and so I think if people took a little more time to kind of block out the, the, the here and the now and to actually think on the eternal, they'd probably care a little bit more about what Christ said um, about how you're supposed to live, which then in turn puts a lot more importance on those words. And so you really start to think, well, what exactly did he mean when he said, you know, to, to, uh, to return good for evil. Um, you know, it seems pretty simple. Um, and I think, you know, the Tolstoyan concept would be is that he's not speaking any kind of secret language there. He's quite literally saying when someone commits evil on you, you commit a good in return. And, you know, that then really complicates a lot of things that we on a societal level or a cultural level view as being just actions. It becomes much more difficult to justify 
things that we as Americans or as Westerners might view as being a very just behavior. All right, let's talk about Tolstoy a little bit. We talked about MLK. You brought up Tolstoy again. Let's talk about Tolstoy. And, and I, the, what I love so much about reading what you sent me, and this you're, you're going to explain this here a little bit, that it's not out where people can easily search it, but it's going to be at some point where people will be able to read and you're going to add to it and maybe turn it into a book at some point. And if you turn it into a book, guess what? You're coming back on the Bad Roman Podcast. We're going to talk about it again. So, Sounds good. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> Tolstoy to me somebody sent me uh she sent me a picture of a book she found she's in South Korea right now and it was a, a war and peace by Tolstoy I have not read it I said but you can't go wrong with Tolstoy all right so and, and she's one of those that are kind of on the fence about Christian anarchy and about this stuff but she's kind of coming around and then sometimes she kind of reverts back to what anyway yeah when it comes to Tolstoy, and I and I love what I love about Tolstoy, he was very matter of fact and very like it is what it is type. You know, when it, when you th- when you when you think about what uh, what Jesus was saying, Tolstoy was like, it is what it is. This is what Jesus said, and this is what we're going to do. I want to talk about that a little bit because I get accused of being black and white, and I I'm admittedly black and white when it comes to my thinking. You know, I don't see very much gray if any when it comes to anything that anything going on in my life that's what i love about tolstoy is he's very black and white about this and jesus was very black and white about jesus wasn't gray in a lot of areas when it comes to some of this you love your neighbor and your enemy there was no instead or well but if your enemy does this it's okay to cut off the roman soldier's ear off now we'll put it away I, i love the black and whiteness about how Tolstoy approaches this topic. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, uh, Tolstoy provided simplicity in his understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And that's a beautiful thing. Now, Tolstoy was known for being quite radical in his attempts at adhering to his own interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. But he stumbled and fell just like the rest of us. Um, He even spoke to that because quite a few of his critics Um, at the time would point out that he himself was not succeeding off, you know, all the time at the things that he was saying were necessary. Um, And he he made the comment that, you know, uh, instead of, uh, it was something along the lines of, you know, instead of, instead of speaking ill of the path that I'm attempting to follow, speak ill of the man who's stumbling down the path. Um, you know, call out my own deficiencies, but don't say that the path that I'm trying to follow is deficient itself. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing and a very Christian concept, and it should seem very uh, apparent to most Christians that, you know, we're, we're sinful creatures who constantly have to repent from our own sins. And just because I repented yesterday doesn't mean today or even the same day won't go back and commit a sin that I have to repent for at some point. Um, It's just, it's part of our nature. Um, And so, you know, Tolstoy, I don't know if you can hear my child, the anarchist screaming in the back. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's, they're they're all good, man. I love them. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, it's one of those situations and I love it because, you know, one of the things that I took from the military that I very much enjoyed and very much think is applicable to 
um, to, to civilian life, to a Christian life, is this, this concept of simplicity. You know, we have a tendency as Christians, especially Orthodox Christians, to just overcomplicate the situation and the things that we're required to do and the things we're required to adhere to, the creeds that we're supposed to know and understand. We overcomplicate things to the point that it just becomes a muddied picture that we aren't quite sure what to make of it or how to behave within it. Um, but Tolstoy had no problems with that. He very much put all of his emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount because he viewed that as Christ's literal words about how we were supposed to live. And it was applicable to Tolstoy, in, as I said, in every situation, at every time, and in every place. You could always find some way to make it applicable. Um, and that was a, you know, that was a beautiful thing. And I really do agree that we shouldn't condemn Tolstoy because he failed at times to adhere to the very things that he was espousing. It's, it, we can't expect Tolstoy to be perfect in that. What we can expect, and the same thing that I talked about in my, you know, my pastorly persona earlier, is that we always try to keep it in focus. We always try to be reflective, um, self-reflective, and look at our own deficiencies and see where we can make changes and see what we can aspire to. Um, you know, it's uh, that simplicity was a beautiful thing in my mind. Um, and we see with, with others like Gandhi and King, you know, they had very specific applications for how they wanted to use nonviolence or how they wanted to use pacifism. And, you know, especially in King's case, and I think it may be because of his his Christian foundations, you know, eventually he had to reflect on, well, if this is working in this regard for this specific thing, perhaps it is applicable elsewhere in life. Perhaps there is more emphasis to be placed on the Sermon on the Mount to all aspects of life. Well, and it's this is something I wanted to get to as well. And, and I love that because. If we do, if we quote some like with, with our Facebook page or something, we quote somebody from like like Gandhi, you know, and they're like, "Well, Gandhi was this and that, you know, he did this and that." And I'm like, "Does that change what he said though? Whether he was a, I mean, I, I always get hit with this. Well, he was a child molester. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. What I do know is what he said is sounds a lot like Jesus." And so that doesn't change what he said, or you know, and even uh, Martin Luther King Jr. They, they there was it came out, you know, they come out and said that he was cheating on his wife and all this stuff. Okay, I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But does it change what he said? And when it, it Tolstoy did whatever, does it change what he said? It, what what I, I find so <laughs> frustrating with Christians is before you start blasting somebody for their like you said deficiencies, maybe make sure that your stuff's in line first. And that's what I do. I try to do it myself. Before I start going at somebody, I was like, well, make sure that your stuff's in order before. And it's never going to be in order. That's the thing. We're, we're not going to get all this figured out in this lifetime. That's what I think is so beautiful about the afterlife, the idea that we're going to be able to figure this out as we go along, even after we pass away from this life. You know, before I start judging somebody, I got to make sure that my stuff's in line first. I mean, it, and that's, I mean, it's very important thing. And of course, 
when you bring up things like that, it it certainly muddies the water um, in in many ways. And and I think you know it's it's justifiable to at least squint at what someone tells you to do if you discover that they themselves aren't necessarily always adhering to it. When I say squint, that just means look at it with a, a you know a, a you know a, a little bit more discernment, you know. If what you're reading in and of itself and by itself is beneficial to you and to those around you and to your broader community, then it stands alone on its own as being a good thing. It's just it's one of those it's one of those situations. I often find that when 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 someone brings that up, when you're having a discussion about a very specific thing that someone said or wrote about a very specific matter and someone throws out of left field, yeah, well, Gandhi was a child molester. It's usually a deflection because they don't want to talk about the actual topic. That in no way, shape, or form condones, you know, if Gandhi was a child molester, I'm certainly not condoning that. But it's because, it's typically because someone doesn't just doesn't want to have that discussion about that very specific thing because they may or may not have a good argument against it. And so, you know, it's, 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 it tends to be a deflection, especially in online conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's inescapable in online conversation. And again, it goes back to kind of our conversation before with, with Dr. Hart, where, you know, he, he often laments the fact that no one will actually engage his, the argument he is making. And instead they just bring something else up that's supposed to condemn the whole thing that doesn't. And it's like, well, we're not arguing about the fifth ecumenical account. So we're arguing about this specific thing that I said, which, you know, and it it tends to be a situation where people are just trying to deflect from the actual discussion. Straw man arguments are, are one of my favorites. I mean, I, I enjoy the straw man argument so much because it, it brings so much to the conversation. You know, it's really making the conversation more fruitful. And if y'all don't know me by now, I'm being very uh, uh, satirical when it comes when I'm saying this because I really hate straw man arguments. Yeah. You know, I, I really despise straw man arguments because if if we if you want to engage somebody with 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 a topic about the specific topic. Don't come at me with a straw man because I'm going to disengage very quickly because I don't have time for that garbage. Yeah. You talk about uh, Bentley Hart. I mean, I kind of get it. I kind of get why he would be frustrated. You know, he's got something to talk about and somebody wants to come at him. Well, what about this? You know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this. You know, it's when it comes to that topic of universalism, it always goes down to like a straw man. And, And even with, with pacifism, it always turns into a straw man argument somehow, and I don't get it. Why can't we just have a conversation? Okay, yes, I'm a flawed human being. Nicholas is a flawed human being. You can pinpoint our our flaws, but let's talk about Jesus. He was without flaw, and Jesus said this. If Jesus said this, like Tolstoy is saying, Jesus said this when it came to the Sermon on the Mount, this is how it's it, it, it can be applied to every part of our life. Jesus said this. Tolstoy didn't say this. Tolstoy's making the case because Jesus said this. Right, right. And that's and that's another argument that Tolstoy used to make is that when people are criticizing his beliefs, it's not that they have a problem with him or his beliefs. It's that they actually have a problem with Jesus. Yes, exactly. That's but that's I, I, 
That's what I say sometimes when it turns into these straw man arguments. Like, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with Jesus right now. This is not something that Craig pulled out of the air and started saying himself. No, I'm quoting Jesus Christ himself. Right, right. He said this. He said, Peter, put away the sword. Right. And when it comes to uh, Christians involved with the state, Jesus said it would not be so among you. Jesus said this. Craig didn't say this. This is me being totally honest right now. I enjoy more than anything in this world when I stumble into a Christian anarchist <laughs> Facebook page and someone cites uh, Peter, uh, the, the whole sword by a sword. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I love it when people cite that as a as Jesus condoning violence. Yes. <laughs> condoning weapons. Boy, I and in fact, I probably need to repent of that because it, it provides too much joy in my life for me to be able to sit down and in fact, I think I have a Word document saved where I just explained it all for one post, and then I just go back and copy and paste it. <laughs> well, I mean, because you, you, you I mean, you, you keep repeating, and it's the same thing. They're they're missing it for some some reason. When it comes to like the the whole bias sword, you know, keep keep reading. He says why to do it, but you can't stop there. If you just read two verses further or something like that, it quite literally says, so that the prophecy might be fulfilled, which is a prophetic account from the Old Testament about two swords uh, and the and being being labeled the brigands by the Romans. It's so it's so quite quite literally so that the Romans will have an excuse to arrest Jesus and crucify him so that the prophecy might unfold. I mean, it, it's not. It doesn't mean go to your local gun shop and buy a nine millimeter. Yeah, it, that's not what Jesus is condoning. Not what Jesus is telling you to do. Keep reading. It's not. You know, don't go buy your Jesus Glock. It's not. It's not a. <laughs> it's not an admonition for for weapon sales. I love that. I love that conversation. I, I'm, I'm like you when I stumble into these conversations, and a lot of times. I'll start the conversation, not on purpose to get into this topic because I know where it's going. I just read something like I mentioned, like the Rival Nations article. I just read it. I was like, this is great. This is beautiful. And I and I read it and I shared it. And it was a picture of a guy holding a pistol. And all of a sudden, it turned as well, go buy, a, go buy a sword. Okay, keep reading. And then what happens when, when, when Peter tried to defend Jesus? Jesus said, put it away. Right. Right. And then what did Jesus do? He healed the guy that was arresting him. Right. Right. How is this missed? I, I this is what I can't why is this glossed over, Nicholas? This I don't understand why that portion of that topic is glossed over. Look, the the Bible is a is a story in totality. You can't piece it out and then proclaim to understand the fullness of what Christ who and what Christ was. By saying, you know, uh, this individual verse or this individual story means this specifically. It's a it's a it's a story that only unfolds in its own t totality. And so, you know, it, it's one of those situations where certainly you can find stories and verses that have very specific, very understandable meanings. But again, to bring back origin, you know, we talk about so so often we come across stumbling blocks where something we read in the Bible doesn't seem to be congruent with what we understand about Jesus Christ. And that usually means that we have to look at a deeper level of what the text is saying. If it makes sense on its face, 
then it's meant to be taken at face value. If it's more difficult to understand in relation to our understanding of Jesus, then we have to think about it a little bit more. And it's probably it probably contains a deeper spiritual message that maybe we aren't going to be able to draw from it just by taking the words for what they mean on the page. You know, it's just, it's one of those things and it's different. It's different for each person, you know, which, which really can complicate the matter. You know, it's, it's just who we are as people. Again, we draw a conclusion first, and then we go to the Bible to look for things that might support it. And so we look for those specific passages that might support what we have to say. And if we continue reading a couple lines further, we see that maybe if I, if I included those two lines, that passage might not actually be in line with what I'm trying to say. So let's cut those off and we'll just use verses one through 14 instead of one through 16. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole Romans 13 argument right there. I mean, you know, I mean, how many times are you hit with Romans 13 as a Christian anarchist? Look, man, I had to preach on Romans 13. Uh, uh, a few months back, and you had to, or you couldn't wait to. Uh, well, it was it was initially a moment of apprehension on my part. Um, I thought, oh boy, I've been toying around and 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 you know walking on eggshells, trying not to come out as a completely uh, crazy <laughs> anarchist in front of this uh, very orthodox congregation for some time now. I guess they're finally going to get to see who I really am. And, you know, it was a blessing. And I found this to be a blessing. Very interesting, actually. You know, um, if my rector preached the way I do on Romans 13, or I've had the opportunity to teach on pacifism uh, several times, if he preached the way I did, they would have torches and pitchforks in his front yard (laughs) by nightfall. But I have found that even some of the most ardently, um, I don't know how you would describe it exactly. They're certainly, uh, you know, they adhere to very, a very American understanding of the Bible, I guess is the way to put it. I don't know. It's not a very efficient way to say it, but they have given me grace for the simple fact that I'm a combat wounded veteran who's talking on, who's speaking to pacifism. And so because they assume by, you know, that label that I know what violence really is like, that they're willing to give me the time to to speak on why pacifism matters. Well, I mean, I mean, I think that's, I think that that's, that's a great point too, because you, you have, I don't want to use, I don't know if the word clout is the right word to use here, but you have, you have an experience that a lot of people have not experienced before. So they're going to listen to you coming from that perspective because you have an experience that they have not experienced. And when you're talking about pacifism as a war veteran, or if you're talking about the government as a war veteran, they're going to, I understand that because I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm always very thrilled to talk to veterans on this show because I, and, and next week I'm talking to somebody who was a, uh, he's a, he's a war vet. He's a four, he's a very decorated, uh, uh, military. I can't remember if it's a Marines or army. I can't remember for sure, but he's got this perspective about war. And I always, I always love these conversations because I didn't experience it. And I think it's important for Christians to be able to be able to listen to folks like yourself who have experienced it. And then they're coming at, 
you're coming at it with a perspective now, but I'm a pacifist and I don't entangle myself with the state any longer. You know, there, there's something clarifying, you know, when when you see someone going between two extremes, between war, which is one extreme and pacifism, which is another extreme. When you hear that about a person, most people are probably intrigued, I would imagine, because that is a that's a pretty profound transformation. Right. So when they hear that, it probably becomes curious to them, like how how and why would something like that occur? Um, and so there, there's probably a curiosity aspect to it. There's probably an aspect of it where, you know, they themselves, maybe they feel like they live a normal, somewhat mundane life. And, and maybe they're, they're, you know, about to experience some aspect of something they've never experienced before that might be profound for them. Um, you know, and, and I'm certainly appreciative of it because it, it allows me to speak more to my own personal beliefs um, and to be more authentic in front of people. And, and they, you know, you know, very thankfully, they, they show me grace and, and listen to me. They hear me oftentimes when I think that people who haven't necessarily had an experience like that you know, they, they might not be given that grace to be heard by others so easily. Right. I mean, uh, you can sit here and listen to Craig spout off about pacifism on the Bad Roman podcast or Craig spout off about Romans 13 on the Bad Roman podcast. But when somebody who's experienced it firsthand starts spouting off about pacifism and Romans 13, it, it I mean, I get it. I understand why somebody's more willing to listen to Nicholas talk about this than they would Craig, because Craig's just got an opinion and Craig's never experienced. But Nicholas has experienced it. So I understand. That's why I said I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to folks like you and next week, Joe Chadburn. You remember that conversation you and I did with uh, Eric Campbell on the show? Yeah, yeah. I was listening to you guys talk back and forth, and y'all were saying things that I did not understand, but it was fascinating to me. Like, y'all were just, conver- just talking to each other. It's like, I don't know what that means, but this is fascinating. <laughs> and y'all were just having a ball, and I felt like this guy, like, I'd like to treat the podcast like, we're just having a conversation and people are eavesdropping in on our conversation. Well, I was eavesdropping in on yours and Eric's conversation during that show. And I loved it because y'all knew what y'all were saying. I'm like, and I was just this total ignorant idiot in the background. Like, Oh, I don't know what that means, but this sounds fascinating. I want to learn more. I want to hear more what they're talking about. Well, Craig, I hate to tell you, it's not because you haven't experienced the things we have. Um, about half your audience probably turns off the show as soon as they hear you're from Arkansas. So <laughs> I'm not from Arkansas, though. No. Oh, no. You're from you're from Texas, right? Look, I wore this T-shirt just for you. See my Texas flag right here on my T-shirt. I, I was like, "What am I going to wear today?" Oh, I'm going to see if I, if Nicholas is going to pick on me wearing a T-shirt that's got a Texas flag on it. And you haven't said anything, and then you accuse me of being from Arkansas. Listen, I lived in Arkansas for 25 years, but I'm not from Arkansas. Okay. Okay. Somebody told me I'm a Tennessean. No, I'm not. I got confused there for a moment, and I apologize. So <laughs> here's the thing. Howard is a, an upstanding, only mildly annoying Texan, like yourself, an Arkansas fan. Well, I mean, <laughs> I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the university is, and it, it's kind of infectious when you live in there. You know, growing up in Texas, I hated the Longhorns. 
you know, to be honest, at the time I was I, I liked the Baylor Bears some, I liked the Texas A and M Aggies some, but I hated the Longhorns. And when I moved to Arkansas, everybody get that horns down when they find out we're from Texas. Like, yeah, I'm with you. You're right. I don't like them either. <laughs> it's sort of like when I when I lived in Alabama and I became an Auburn fan out of spite. You also have to understand this too about 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 Fayetteville, Arkansas too. There's a lot of Texans that go to school at the University of Arkansas. There's a lot of Texans there. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know why for a moment there I thought that you were from Arkansas because now the memories are flooding back to me of all the times that, you know, I, I made sure to inform you that Texas has wonderful smoked meats, but they're not barbecue because it's not whole hog. Oh, I would never call it barbecue. You, you, you don't you don't call it barbecue in Texas. When people call it barbecue, I'm like, that's not barbecue. Okay, it's like a northerner saying, "We're hey, we're going to have a barbecue," and it's like, "Well, what's your idea of a barbecue?" And it's like, "We're going to throw some hot dogs and hamburgers on." Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's like a northerner putting beans and chili. We don't do that in Texas like, either. Like, brother, we are speaking two different languages right now. Yeah, do <laughs> with your picnic. Well, you put some barbecue sauce on your hot dog on the grill. That's a barbecue, okay, but that's not what we do in Texas. No, no, no. All right, before I let you go, I want to say something about David Bentley Hart. Um, and this is I'm giving um, a shout out to Abby Kleckner for recommending this or pointing out this uh, translation of the New Testament that he did. And apparently, he's got a new one out, another translation that I did. I, I think it was Keith Giles posted about it. I was not aware that he had another one, but this translation of this New Testament is. I love it. I love reading it because you can read it, and you're start, you read it when you when you're reading how how it's translated like directly from the Greek, and I love it because it changes the way you read the Bible. It has changed the way I've read the Bible, you know, and 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 I've I've brought this up on the show before when you go to Acts five and when it says like I mentioned our T-shirt, you know, we ought to obey God rather than man. I went to Acts five and read it, and the way it's translated. Is it is necessary that we obey God rather than the man. And that one word necessary, and I apologize to everybody listening to this because y'all heard me talk about this more than once on the show. But that one word necessary made that scripture more powerful to me. It made it more important. It is necessary. And it's not we ought to. No, it's necessary that we obey God rather than man. And, and I think if Christians took that more seriously, they would step away from the state. They would step away from their entanglement with uh, with government because it's necessary that we obey God rather than man. And you saw this earlier about um, with with Martin Luther King. If there's a law that it, that follows the law of God, then it's a justifiable law. The problem when it comes to laws and the, and and the government is somebody. And I mentioned this to you before we started recording. Somewhere along the way, when it comes to government laws, somebody somewhere is being harmed in some fashion because that law could turn into a different law or they could use this law to justify putting somebody in a cage for smoking a plant. You know, I mean, come on. I, I that's, I'm, I'm real, I'm real hesitant to, to follow that line of thinking. Like, like MOK was saying, because I know at the end of the day, there's going to be another law that they can play off of with that one law. That's going to put somebody in a cage or it's going to harm somebody somewhere in some fashion. I mean, I asked Keith Giles and Jason Porterfield on the show when we talked about the early church very early on in the project. I said, point to me somewhere that the government, whatever the government's doing, show me somewhere that they are do what they're doing is not harming somebody somewhere in some fashion. I'll eat your hat. You know what I mean? So I, I just went on a, a different, like all over the place because I started with David Bentley Hart and then in the translation. And then I went into the MIK and the, and the laws and this stuff. But, 
anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so with David Bentley Hartz, I have not read his translation yet, but um, uh, Father Hart, director of our church, will often, you know, as Anglicans, we use the KJV um, exclusively. Um, but he does, he does point out quite a few differences in translation using his brother's text. Um, and I think the biggest emphasis for his brother's text, if I understand it correctly, is ensuring that the Greek words that were used in writing the Bible are being translated in a way that is truthful to the context of the time. So how the word would have been used and would have meant at the time it was written, which can, which can, you know, sometimes throw some, some significant changes into the way a text is, uh, is interpreted. You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, and the fact that he does use the, the word necessary is, is a very interesting uh, difference. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. You know, I think as Christians, you know, Christ didn't walk around simply disobeying the Romans just because they were the Romans and they were the state and he was, you know, uh, required to disobey the state. God or Christ walked around with an understanding of obeying God's law, of obeying the law. And in any instance where God's law and Roman law were congruent and were uh, complementary of one to the other, then, you know, Christ isn't disobeying that simply because it is a, a societal law. And so, you know, Christian anarchists in, in the proper sense are not people who just go around breaking laws for the simple fact that they're anarchists. Right. We just don't associate with government when it is unnecessary for us to. You know, like it's it's it in the most literal sense, it's just seeking to live a life independent of as independent of government as possible. Well, and it reminds me of something that Tertullian said, and, and, and I bring him up all the time. He said, he said, we're not interested in your meetings. Right. The affairs of the state are completely foreign to us. Right. And then they, that, that just it's it should be completely foreign to us. You know, when you get into how you mentioned Jesus, I mean, just he didn't walk around breaking laws because he was an anarchist. He just right. walked around living. Right. When you see me, you've seen the father. You know, he walked around doing that, you know, and if and if, if if he came into conflict with what the state was saying, he didn't he didn't. Well, I'm going to I'm going to do what the state says. No, it's like Tertullian said, it's completely foreign to us. We have no interest in your meetings. I will not occupy a voter's booth. Well, you know, if if we were to take David Bentley Hart's interpretation of, you know, uh, it is necessary to follow God over men to 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 listen to God instead of listening to men it very much is in line with Tolstoy's own understanding that you know the title of his book the kingdom of God is within you yes we are to live in such a way as to make tangible the kingdom of God and so it, it's not so much you know oftentimes especially in America we have Christians who are awaiting the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. I think Tolstoy would argue that that we we live in a time where we we are capable of of assisting in that second com- that that kingdom of God on earth. And that, you know, it's a it's somewhat of an, an Augustine 
concept. It's where the will of the individual has to meet the grace of God that, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not Calvinist in its, you know, understanding. It's, it's very much that you have a role to play in making this happen. Right. That requires you to live in a way that Christ commanded you to live. And, you know, it's, I say this so many times in, in church at the, the pulpit. We're called to love our neighbor as ourself. The real problem in today's society that I see is that how can we love our neighbor if we don't first love ourselves? And so it's very Tolstoyan in the sense that first make right your own life. Yes. And then make right your interactions with others. Right. And when you do that, you are bringing about the kingdom of God. When you figured your own stuff out, then you can go tell other people how to live. <laughs> That's pretty much, I mean, you, you talked about simplicity earlier. I mean, I say this all the time. When, when I get back to the very basics, just the keep it simple, stupid. I tell myself that all the time. Keep it simple, stupid, Craig. You know, just, just keep it simple. And then everything else is going to work itself out. Man, Nicholas, I've... Dude, I enjoy talking to you so much, and I miss getting to have conversations with you like we used to online. And I and I, and I do miss uh, you picking on me from time to time. So please feel free to uh, send me a text to pick on me, or just pop in on one of my posts just to pick on me because I do miss it. I mean, well, look, man, we're I can't say that life is going to get simpler in the very near future. Uh, we have a third child that's due on uh, May 3rd. Oh, it's the day after um, my birthday. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, May 2nd is my birthday. Well, it could happen on it could it could happen early. A <laughs> little anarchist is that. Ow, do not pull my beard, young lady. Um, but yeah, so I should be getting some paternity leave. So who knows? I may be uh I may be back on the uh, the Facebook pages before long. Well, hey, man, we're going to be in Nashville uh, for a, a Bad Roman meetup. I don't know if, if y'all can make your way down there to, to hang out and eat some uh, beautiful smoked meats. We had Jay Newman on the show, and he's a uh, pit master. We're going to meet at uh, Shotgun Willie's to eat some of his beautiful smoked wheat, meats. And, uh, when is this? Hang out on uh, the end of June, the very end, the last weekend of June, we're going to go to Nashville. Uh, some people, are just, we're just going to meet up. Uh, Chris Polk, uh, Darren, uh a lot of folks are going to show up to uh, just hang out as uh, Christian anarchists and eat some beautiful smoked meats. We may even make it down to Music Row at some point and do a little dancing. I don't know. I don't know if you got your 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 two stepping boots in line, but we we might do some of that as well. Trust me, you do not want me to two step anything. But I'd like to see it happen. That way, I can pick on you about something. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it'll be great. It'd be cool. To, it's going to be fun just to be able to meet folks face to face instead of doing this, you know, online and, and stuff because. As much as I enjoy this, the the physical or you know face to face interactions are, are so much more important, and I think it it really gives us strength to keep going to remind ourselves that we're not really that crazy. We're just trying to figure this stuff out as we go. I mean, don't get me wrong, Craig. You might be crazy about other things. I'm I'm pretty crazy about a lot of things. and thinking that you know brisket is is real barbecue, but <laughs> no, I mean I agree. I think there's. So one of the things that I'm, I'm most ardent about at, at my church is, is, you know, we're called to be a community. And I think, you know, um, whether you consider yourself an, an anarchist or what have you, uh, Christian anarchist, there is there is a, a beautiful 
thing that comes out of a real sense of community um, that we all crave on a spiritual level, a physical level, a mental level. And, and I agree with you. I think I think it's a it's a wonderful thing when people of like mind or or not even necessarily of like mind who, who come together and can discuss things and fellowship. You know, um, I will I will certainly talk to my wife. I always enjoy a good trip that's uh, barbecue centered. Oh yeah, it's gonna be sitting around some uh, some uh, smoked meats and uh, some music. I mean, I've never been to Nashville. We tried to do this, you know, right before the COVID thing hit, and then it shut everything down. And I was like, if I can't go to Nashville without listening to some music, I don't want to go. So we just postponed it. Now three years later, we're gonna try it again. Who knows if the government's gonna try and lock the, the state the, the the world down again? Yeah. To keep the Christian anarchists, the bad Romans, from showing up in Nashville, we'll see. But as of right now. It's on like Donkey Kong, and we're going to go to Nashville and, and hang out. Sounds good. I'll, I'll talk to my wife. That certainly sounds like a trip I'd like to make. Awesome, man. All right, buddy. I really do. Like I said, I really do miss talking to you, and I, I, I cherish every time I do get to speak to you because you, um, you bring some common sense to the conversation that is missed a lot of times, and, and I really do appreciate the work that you're doing, and I really appreciate how um, you seem so centered right now. And I, and I appreciate that about you. And I just, I, I want you to know that I, I think about you often and I, and, I, and I hope that we can connect some more, you know, in the future. I appreciate that, Craig. And, and I, I really do. I miss, you know, sometimes when you're doing this type of work where you're just buried and writing and reading all the time, it can become, you know, more of a, a labor than a, a love and a passion. And so when I get to, you know, do stuff like this and actually like go out and, and, and just be a part of a community, um, you know, the way the way things used to be uh, as, as I, you know, a bit of a nostalgia. It's always really helpful to kind of put it into perspective that like it, it really is something meaningful. And, and you know, it gives me it gives me a little bit of uh, a boost um, and a little bit of added morale to, to keep on trying to to do the work and eventually be able to hopefully make a difference for some folks. You know, that's that's the goal is just just hoping that people will read it and just give it some thought. I don't even care if it's completely pers- persuasive for you. Just just as long as you'll seriously think about it and maybe maybe question a few things in your own life. And if you don't feel persuaded by it, that's fine. I just want people to maybe open their eyes a little bit more and maybe be open to to, you know, being self-reflective. All right, before I let you go, so this piece that you sent me, they they, they can't find it online, but Eventually, it's going to be out there where people, because you're going to add to it and possibly turn it into a book. So, yeah. So the the goal is uh, I'm presenting at a uh, conference for the Journal of uh, Pacifism and Nonviolence in April, um, and I'll be presenting on this paper, um, which is a, a paper, uh, you know, broadly comparing Tolstoy and King. And the paper itself is serving as kind of a, a dissertation in miniature for uh, my PhD project. Um, which will eventually culminate in me writing a dissertation that hopefully can be published as a book. Um, so you may be able to see uh, the the hope is is that the paper that I currently uh, just sent to Craig will be published in the Journal of Non uh, Pacifism and Nonviolence as it is. But uh, regardless of whether or not that happens, hopefully uh, within the next few years it'll it'll be in book form. So. Well, so uh, if, if people are interested to read what you sent me, maybe they can reach out to you and uh, you can send it, send it their way and they can read it what you sent me. 
yeah, no, that would that would be perfectly fine. And uh, I don't know um, if the conference. I'll have to check and see. It might be possible for for people to participate in the conference as well, where I'll be presenting the paper. Um, so if that's of interest, you know, you can certainly uh, reach out to me, and I'd, I'd be happy to to get you the information. All right, cool. So they can find you. Just uh, look up Nicholas Harrison on Facebook, or look up Nicholas Harrison on Facebook, or you can email me. My uh, email is Nicholas Harrison at duke.edu and i can send that uh to craig um if you wanted to put it uh in the, the commentary or whatever for we'll, the- we'll put it in the show notes okay yeah all right buddy man i really appreciate it and we'll, we'll definitely do this again because when that book's published i mean i don't care if it's 17 years from now we're gonna get you back on the show we'll still be talking about no king but christ it very well could be 17 years from now <laughs> i keep having kids so yeah. Yeah. Stop having kids. Get them all graduated and then write a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right, buddy. I will talk to you soon. Yep. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.